Blog Talk Radio. Congress. 
he vowed to approach the presidency as master of the Senate, as biographer Robert Caro described Johnson. Right? <laughs> he went and he went and cajoled, he begged, he threatened, he loved, he hugged, he did whatever what leaders do, which is they personally get engaged to make something happen. What Bush said of Johnson, Bush cited Caro's late book about Johnson, The Passage of Power, which covers the first part of Johnson's presidency. Yeah, anyway, uh, just a little more here. But the Bush, who has a, a book on comprehensive immigration reform due out next month, said it was a big, it was un-American to have illegal immigrants living in fear of exposure. It says to me, and I'm here as this great Catholic institution, and this is just why church teaches me, it's completely un-American to require people living in the shadows, he declared. That's Jeb Bush, who is a Reformed Catholic, I guess, of some sort. Okay. Interesting, no? Breaking news. Breaking news, folks. Ron Paul endorses Ted Cruz. So much for Rand Paul. Well, Rand Paul didn't endorse his father. So, I know. You know. There's quite a split there. I can't believe he endorsed Ted Cruz, though. Holy cow. That's not good. Okay, every Wednesday morning, former Congressman Ron Paul shocked, uh, early Wednesday, shocked the political world uh, by endorsing Senator Ted Cruz for president. And the move is of a marked significance as Dr. Paul's son, Rand, uh, uh, is expected to announce his candidacy early this week. He already did. And the elder Paul quickly articulated the reason for his endorsement, stating that uh, he had read hundreds of Facebook and Reddit comments uh, just uh, and suggested that his son was a neocon establishment status and not Ron Paul. Ron Paul, therefore, used thereby used the articulate and well-reasoned opinions of these online libertarians to come to the realization that he could not endorse Rand Paul. Dr. Paul went on to say that he knew all along that Rand was not a true libertarian and that he can't understand why Rand endorsed Mitt Romney in 2012 and Mitch McConnell in 2014. It doesn't make any sense to me, said Ron Paul. It's almost as if he's trying to create inroads with leadership so that he can use their help in the future in order to advance a more libertarian agenda. But that can't be it. Um, Paul has expressed particular outrage that his son has not yet taken any action to eliminate public roads. I don't understand. Public that. roads? Yeah, I don't know what that means, really. Do you know, like, roads to travel on? Or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Paul, so, all the while, these statistics love their roads. <laughs> Statuses love their roads, and Rand hasn't done a single thing about it. How are we supposed to be free when our karma's passageways are funded with blood money? When the interview inquired, interview inquired as to why this was a point of such significance, when public roads are apparently a fairly minor infringement upon liberty, which are almost universally approved of, Paul went on a minor tangent, mockingly repeating over and over, my roads, my roads. Okay. The Fonger Carlson also decried Senator Paul's appearance at multiple Republican-hosted Lincoln Day dinners over the years, calling President Abraham Lincoln a tyrant and criticizing his, his decision to go to battle in the War of Northern Aggression. 
Paul went on to say that no true libertarian would ever attend such a gathering unless he was adorned with the Confederate flag. After several hours of ranting on Rand Paul, Ron soon returned to his endorsement. Ted who, oh right, that's why I'm endorsing Ted Cruz. Paul cited Cruz's staunch fiscal conservatism and devotion to the Constitution, saying that he is planning to soon launch his own Libertarians for Ted Cruz chapter in his former congressional district. Only Ted Cruz can continue my legacy of expanding our voter base without ever running the risk of victory, said Paul. If we have a Libertarian president, what will we have to complain about? Before the interviewer could inject, Paul interject, Paul answered his own question. I'll tell you what we'll complain about. We'll complain when they're not Libertarian enough. When reached for comment, Rand Paul expressed clear sadness that he would not be receiving his father's endorsement. Senator Paul said that it has long been his desire to fool everyone in the libertarian movement into voting for him by introducing almost exclusively libertarian bills to the Senate floor, making mostly libertarian public policy statements, and often differing from the Republican Party when it has not been libertarian enough. To be honest, what's the point of running now, said Senator Paul, if I can't just pretend to be a libertarian, become president, president, and then ironically enact libertarian policies? I really have no reason to campaign. The Senator stated that he thought he had tricked most people and that he would have gotten away with that too if it weren't for those ingenious social media comments. The senator should not worry too much, however, as his father also urged Ted Cruz supporters not to vote as they would violate the non-aggression principle. Hmm. Okay. So, kind of strange. I don't know. Uh, yeah. All right. Paul, Paul kind of lost his nuggets. I, I think they both did. Kind of lost his nuggets. Uh, anyway. Doesn't make a lot of sense well, to me, Paul unless he was uh, trying to be funny. I didn't see the humor in it, though. Well, Ron Paul did say that the Ukrainian coup was not only supported by the U.S. and the EU governments, much of it was actually planned by them. Well, that's true. I agree with that. Uh, 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 I agree with that. I don't disagree with that. We put a huge amount of money into that. Yeah. It says, uh, protected leave by country. Um, we are... It says, we are the only industrialized country in the world without a federal paid leave law. Every worker should be able to take time off to recover from an illness. This is from AFSCME. Uh, it says, uh, or care for a sick child. It is unconscionable that 43 million private sector workers are forced to risk losing a paycheck or even a job entirely because they don't have paid sick days. Oh, boy. Yeah, and you can click here to... Uh, I think that is so wrong, you know. People who work in um, uh, yeah. in restaurants and things, they don't have health uh, sick no, days. No. I mean, they really need to have it unless you want somebody sneezing all over your food. I don't particularly. No, not, not particularly. Uh, hey, uh, do you want us to go? Can we go? To yeah. Larry's waiting Let's for us. see. Yeah, it's about time we should give him a call now. All right. And Larry, this is where he's going to have uh, Larry Dorman on uh, in just a minute. And he is... Uh, the, uh, Public Affairs Coordinator for AFSCME Council 4 out of New Britain, Connecticut. Yeah. He'll let us know what's going on with the unions. Yeah, he's uh, uh, 
He's our union contact. Yes, he is. There's a lot going on here. Um, AFL-CIO has also uh, got a lot of things on their blog. And here's, here's one that's interesting. Unions are a woman's best friend. With the National Women's History Month behind us now, it's still important to celebrate the great strides women have made over the past decades. It is equally important to remember how many women workers still don't have the basic necessities they need to support themselves and their families. The labor movement views the struggle for women's equality as a shared fight, especially considering women are the sole or primary breadwinners for 40% of families in the U.S. Women of color in particular have a hard time getting good pay and benefits, and they make up a disproportionate share of low-wage workers. Let me read the rest of that. I'm sure there's some statistics here. I hope. Um, nearly 7 million women have a voice on the job due to their union membership, and women in unions are more likely than their non-union peers to have access to paid sick leave and family leave. Collective bargaining through unions also narrows the payback gap between men and women significantly. A typical women union member earns $222 a week more than a non-union woman and it's far more likely to have health and retirement security. This puts upward pressure on wages and benefits throughout industries that are predominantly female, many of which traditionally pay low wages. Every worker deserves to have protection on the job. It is the goal of the labor movement to ensure that happens. Yes, what? What? Um, go to a music break and I'll tell you how to get the number. So we'll go to a, a quick Yeah, we have to break. go to a quick break. Uh, we've got a technical issue there. We'll be right back.
Hello. Hi, Larry. How are you? Good, Leah. How you doing? Hi, Larry. It's Lila. How are you, Lila? It's good to hear from you. Thank you. I was just reading um, the uh, newest edition of the foreword, the Ask Me Council for a little paper that was sent to me. Ah, good. Glad to hear that. Some good stuff in that. And you know what I was um, interested in, because I'm sure many other people around my age, too, that... um, you guys are seeking retirees to uh, be members as well because there's a lot of um, power in retirees who have a little more time than workers to devote to a lot of causes. That's exactly right. I'm actually really proud. We have a, a tremendous retiree chapter. It's uh, about a buck fifty a month, and um, you know they uh, the retiree chapter members stayed in. Uh, you know, municipal and board of education folks, and, and you know, and quite honestly, the chapter uh, has uh, one of our uh, executive board members said the uh, the age range is 50 to you know 75 or 80 because uh, you have a lot of people who have um, retired relatively younger and want to be involved in the union um, cause. So it's really it's really a good thing to see in there. Um, uh, they. Uh, they help us lobby on issues. They volunteer on election campaigns. They, they just do a tremendous amount of work. So it's uh, good. And, and we'll have a bunch of our retiree chapter members at our uh, lobby day on May 20th in Hartford. Oh, that's great. And it, it's good to see we're utilizing people like this because they have a little more time than people that are actively involved in work. But I'm also surprised how much people do uh, who work, too, you know, who it's full-time jobs, they also devote a lot of time. But this is great, and I'm glad you have that outreach. Uh, Thank the you. Other thing, Thank you. The other thing that I was glad to see, I was glad to see that um, you included a list of a working families' agenda at the state capitol. Right. And I thought that was really important for people to realize how many things you guys are trying to do up at the state capitol, I think it's really important. Things like health care pooling and workers' rights and your involvement in the state employee pensions and retirement security and the, uh-huh. governor's, and the governor's proposed budget. Hey, is there, uh, is there, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was going to ask this. Has there been any working family uh, candidates uh, that have gotten any kind of uh, local or federal office? Um, State capital? Yeah. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are several candidates who have run on the working family line um, who um, are are, allies. you know, uh, Gary Holder Winfield from New Haven. Uh, there are there are quite a few actually. I don't have a list in front of me, but um, the, the candidates who have accepted, um, who have, who ran on the Working Families line, um, one in particular that I uh, want to mention, as I said, the Working Families, the Connecticut Working Families endorsed several candidates this past cycle as they have previous cycles, but. Um, there are two that are really exciting. Uh, among the more exciting um, are from Bridgeport, and, that, and they are um, State Senator Marilyn Moore, who uh, 
worked for the phone company. She's speaking of union retirees. She decided to run for office and won her seat in the area representing Bridgeport and Trumbull. And uh, State Senator Edwin Vargas, who actually replaced Senator Andre Sayala, who took a job with the Malloy administration. And um, Ed was not the favorite of the Democratic Party machine in Bridgeport, nor was um, Marilyn Moore, quite frankly. So they both bucked the uh, kind of some of the internal um, politics of their um, city, and then also with the help of uh, Working Families Party, union members, community folks, um, won their seat uh, in the state Senate. So uh, Senator Gomes uh, was uh, recently sworn in uh, about a month ago, and then Marilyn Moore won um, back in November. So, you know, the Working Families line is important. It's valued by the candidates who seek it. And um, I, I do think it, it sends a message about the importance of uh, fusion politics in terms of uh, being accountable on working family issues. One of the things that I'm concerned about, you mentioned also, is that in the governor's proposed budget, because I'm in counseling and involved in connecting people with social services, um, mm -hmm. that the plan to close the social service office in uh, Torrington. And right. that's going to be a real hardship on many of the families that I work with. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I was that you had a meeting last week at the office with um, uh, State Representative Michelle Cook, who's uh, from Torrington and who's. Um, district includes the uh, uh, area where that office is located. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's like you said, it's going to affect people when you close down the offices. Um, you know, they serve, it's very interesting, and you can relate to this being from the northwest section of the state. Um, the Torrington DSS office serves, services 23 towns, um, you know, Kent, Salisbury, um, Torrington, uh, Canton, um, you know, uh, and, you know, there are towns of all sizes, and what the uh, proposed budget does is close that office, and then the clients would actually have to go to Waterbury, and many of them uh, have transportation issues, and then beyond that, they even have, um, you know, computer connectivity issues, which... Uh, you know, because the OPM secretary, Ben Barnes, said, well, a lot of people can just, you know, get their benefits online. And, you know, that's not not exactly fair or accurate. Uh, so when we had the meeting with Representative Cook last week, our uh, one of our eligibility workers said uh, uh, that she had a client who uh, ended up without having transportation, desperately needed to get to the office, um, she walked nine miles, you know, to the office to get some help. And, oh um, you know, and so if she said if she had to go to Waterbury, she wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and then uh, we had a client um, testify before the Appropriations Committee against the cut, and uh, he came to the committee meeting back in February on a cold winter night. He took a cab. Um, to testify to show his support for not just for our workers, but for keeping the office open. And again, he's a, a client receiving services from that office. He took a cab, and the trip cost him a hundred dollars. Oh 
my God. Because, you know, you can't, you know, you can't get from Torrington. I mean, Torrington's a city, but, you know, there's our public transportation is, you know, pretty lacking in Connecticut or, you know, certainly not consistent. So, um, you know, in a perverse way, he kind of proved the point about, when I say perverse, because, you know, he really doesn't have $100 to spend, but um, that's what it cost him to get public transportation to get a ride, you know, in one of those cabs from Torrington to Hartford. So we think it'd be devastating. And, um, you know, the representatives in that area are with us and are pledging to do whatever they can. But that's that's interesting that you, you kind of understand firsthand uh, what this means. Have you uh, mobilized the social service agents in the different towns? Because they're the ones uh, that very often, you know, work with people directly. We are, I know that our eligibility workers are talking to the uh, agents, some of those agencies that you just mentioned in Northwest Connecticut. Um, and we're, we're talking about actually trying to organize a, uh, a rally or some kind of speak out in front of the DSS office soon. So we, we hope to have clients and, you know, um, advocates, of, of social service advocates at that. But yes, we've been and they've been making calls to legislators. So, um, and if, if people are interested, right on our website at council4.org, there's a, a link on the right that says uh, a button, if you will, that says take action. And among those uh, uh, steps they can take is a, um, to keep the Torrington office open. And you'll, you'll be taken right to your uh, uh, sample letter that you can edit if you want or change. And it'll go uh, to your state representative um, regarding the Torrington uh, office closing. So, you know, we are, um, our workers, um, clients, the advocate community is, is speaking out. We just don't know how this is going to play out because the budget is, is growing and growing. Well, it just seems so unfair to um, to make the cuts that really hurts the most disadvantaged population in our state. And, you and know, when you put yeah, you don't <laughs> you know, as <laughs> right. for for people that I know to get to Torrington, but they can very often get a ride from a friend. It's it's forty minutes or forty five minutes, depending whether you live where you live in the northwest corner. And for mm-hmm. me, it would to go to Torrington is forty minutes. Um, yep, that's that's tough for people. But who's going to drive you to Waterbury and back? And to sit there and wait for a couple of hours because right. nobody takes you know. <laughs> Yeah. One of the, uh, yeah, we, we have, we've identified, look, we have, you know, real serious staffing problems. And to their credit, the agency has been trying to um, get uh, the ability through the budget to hire more people. Um, but the fact is um, their DSS, Department of Social Services, is chronically understaffed. So uh, what will happen is if you were to close Torrington, um, you'll create even more of a bottleneck in Waterbury. And um, the lines are already long in Waterbury. Um, you know, there's insufficient parking. There's barely enough parking for the people who work there, let alone the clients. So, you know, you're and as you said, it's just uh, we don't have public, we don't have a reliable public transportation system in Northwest Connecticut, and it's it's you know a twenty thirty minute ride from Torrington to Waterbury, you know under the best of circumstances. And again, we're talking about you know Litchfield, Kent, Salisbury, um, 
you know, Morris, all the towns, um, Canton, um, Harlington, Burlington, you know, uh, these are not easily accessible. And I think it comes back to a conversation the three of us are constantly having about decisions and priorities. Um, we don't want to tax the ultra-rich and the wealthy. We don't want to close corporate tax loopholes. Um, you know, that, that feeds the deficit, and we end up cutting services that people need instead of uh, raising revenues fairly to ensure that those services are delivered. It happens at the local level in the education system, happens at the state level with social and human services and other programs, and we're seeing it play out in higher education. So to me, it's priority. Do you want to help people, um, or do you want to continue uh, feeding the rich and the corporations? That's the stark choice. Well, I heard that, uh, I heard um, Malloy talk about this was this was just yesterday yesterday the day before uh, he was talking about the inequality uh, of income in the in, uh, in in Connecticut and that he wanted to uh, address, address that address, address that fact in the, in, in tax reform. So, but I haven't heard of anything concrete. He just yeah, he, he, did, just, he said he, he alluded wanted, he to said it. He wanted to do that. that. That was just a couple of days ago. Did you hear that speech? Uh, I did remark? not. No, and say again what he Well, what he said is he wanted he wanted to do something to address to the inequality, the income inequality in Connecticut. And uh, he said that uh, he was aware of it and he felt it was a problem, but he didn't really say he how he was he, going yeah, to address he had it. Some tax reform something, but uh, he didn't, he wasn't clear. He did, but he did mention it though. So. So uh, hopefully it's on his mind and he's planning to do something about it. Because he's, you know, if he's going to balance this budget, um, he's going to have to take it from somewhere. And I think he's taking right, it. And you, you, right, and you have the, and I didn't hear that. You have, you know, I mean, you have the additional problem of this kind of this artificial construct known as the spending cap, which um, uh, is is a real problem. So. And look, in a, in, I'm, I'm glad that he said that. He has said that. Um, I, I believe that he means it. I think that this governor is genuine about wanting to uh, create more opportunity and wanting to bridge that gap. And, you know, certainly he needs cooperation from the legislature to do that. Um, you know, there are things you can do. You can obviously, um, a lot of, some of it has to do with um, revenue uh, policies and how we tax people. Um, some of it has to do with making um, making work pay and rewarding work, not just you know with a higher minimum wage, um, but actually um, making sure that workers have the right to to organize and to form unions. Because unions, to me, are the, uh, one of the keys to um, reducing income inequality and giving the middle class, uh, giving people a chance to stay in the middle class. We we obviously agree with you, Larry. <laughs> I know I'm preaching to the choir. Look, I, that's why we have a bill. Uh, we're pursuing legislation to give 300 um, probate court workers the uh, right to unionize. They're excluded right now um, by statute from being able to form a union. Um, I, I don't pretend that that's. I'm not saying that's a solution to Connecticut's budget problems. But again, you know, we're trying to do things that. Um, make it uh, uh, better for workers in this state. Um, you know, when we talk about health care pooling, you know, we're talking about trying to, uh, that's, a, that's simply allowing um, municipalities to buy into the state plan just the way that um, 
they can municipalities can pool for um, you know road salt or copier supplies. And if you can deliver savings of millions of dollars to the cities and towns of Connecticut, that's money that will get plowed back into local economies to protect services that people need. You know, maybe we won't be cutting paraprofessionals. Maybe we won't be cutting, um, you know, art and music programs. So, um, you know, this is about how we try to create a virtuous economy that gives people opportunity. So do you think that's a possibility of coming to fruition, that health care pooling? Well, we're certainly fighting it when um, we're certainly meeting a lot of resistance. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. So um, I, I think it's doable and achievable, but it, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of work. I know we've been talking about it for a long time because it's such a it's such a practical thing, and it makes such sense. But it does. I know there's a lot of resistance. The resistance is tremendous, and a lot of it comes from, you know, the insurance community, uh, from brokers who have these deals with the towns and with the boards of education. Um, So there's a lot of entrenched uh, financial interests that are working against this. So, um, you know, we're we're rolling a rock up a big hill, but we're going to keep doing it until we we get it over the hill. Um, It's important because it just it's just such common sense, you know. It makes too much sense not to do this. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you 100%. And I noted, I noticed in also in your um, uh, paper that is, um, which I wasn't aware of, I don't know how I missed it, that they're, they're thinking about closing uh, one of the prisons. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't exactly well covered, but that's, you know, again, just as they're closing they want to close the Torrington DFS office. Um, they haven't identified a prison, um, and it's not really been a formal proposal, um, but the administration has, has told the Department of Correction to identify that as a possible way of saving money. So far, we're not seeing that um, happen. What they may try to do, though, is close floors of prisons and uh, move uh, inmates to other facilities, which is going to create more volatility. So it's actually... Um, we have overcrowded prisons right now, and um, you still have inmates um, sleeping on floors, and um, it's not exactly a safe situation or a healthy situation for anybody. Uh, well, I think I think we need more community-based efforts. In um, other states have done that and found that uh, actually a better system, but we haven't done enough that way, I don't think. Well, and again, you know, we uh, many years ago, uh, the state in its uh, wisdom or lack thereof closed places, um, you know, like Norwich Hospital. Um, And so, you know, when you close um, hospitals that uh, help people, we're helping people deal with substance abuse and and other issues, um, now they end up in the prison system. Uh, And that's not a place necessarily where they're going to get better. Um, and or at least you know to necessarily get the counseling and the help uh, for addiction, uh, and so that's you know again that's the problem with this anti-government uh, mentality that's uh, frenzy actually that's overtaken the country and the state. You know we we've closed public facilities that serve the mission, um, and you, you close them. The private sector doesn't necessarily pick it up. That's right. And I think the the other, the other issue that we have is that um, 
although we get a, a lot of money from gambling, we um, that revenue has been significantly impacted by the economy, and now we're going to have a lot of competition in nearby right. states. So I hope there's some initiative to look at other areas that to get income right. rather than trying to expand uh, a business that uh, maybe has really reached its peak in this state. Uh, yeah, you, you do ask how much gambling can you have, <laughs> you know? Really? You know, I'm, I'm not uh, interested in that kind of thing as entertainment, but I know many, many people are. Many of my friends are. They really enjoy, you know, going out to the casinos. You know, a little, they go with groups of people, they go and see, you know, entertainers come, and they really, really like it. Um, and But I, I, I think that, you know, how many places can you go to and how often? I mean, they couldn't survive down in Atlantic City anymore, you know? Most of yeah. Because yeah. of the competition here. <laughs> well, Las Vegas they've had. Las Vegas is closing. Some places have closed yeah. out there, too. So, I mean, it, it's kind yeah, of yeah. Now they compete with online gambling and stuff like that, you know? And to say nothing yeah. of it, everybody point. I know buys a lotto ticket, right? Yeah. We're all going to be millionaires. So it's, yeah. a gambling, it's a gambling frenzy, but it's questionable how much of it uh, is productive or really, you know. Well, that's uh, it. We, we're not getting a sense of, uh, you know, and, uh, of, of what kind of that can, and, and I'm not, you know, playing, a, I'm not being a moralist. I mean, I'm not interested. I'm not a gambler, so I don't really, you know, go. I've been to the casinos um, because of restaurants and things like that, and friends go. Um, you know, there, there's no doubt they generate, that they create jobs and that they create some economic activity. But I think there's also, when you're talking about casinos and the like and gambling, um, you know, I think sometimes it's a lack of creativity. Um, maybe we ought to be looking, you know, into more alternative energy and, you know, um, windmills and things like that. You know, those would create, you know, that would create jobs, with, you know, renewable, sustainable energy. You know, how come we don't have the vision to do that? Or whatever it is. We, you know, many Yeah, pick your, pick your, yeah. Yeah, pick an area, and they try to attract those kinds of jobs. We used to be the insurance state, right? Right. Yeah, and and uh, we had a lot of insurance company jobs, and we had a lot of manufacturing and that kind of thing. You know, we have to kind of pick an area and attract those kinds of business. That's what state people uh, areas seem to do. Uh, right. I don't know. Right. If, well, if too much to... of what passes for you know, too much of what passes for economic economic activity these days is, um, you know, attacking workers and their bargaining rights and taking things away from um, social services and the clients. Um, every program, you know, seems to be about taking more uh, what little money working class people have and poor people have, and giving it back to the privateers and to the corporations and to the wealthy, and you know, not pumping it back into the community. Um, so you're right, you know, we're there, and I just think it shows a real lack of creativity and maybe that there's just too much kind of corporate and ultra wealthy influence over the, the political process. Yeah. yeah, to change the subject a little bit, uh, just mm -hmm. before, 
Um, Leo is reading an article on Rand Paul and Ron Paul. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> Just reading <laughs> confusing. I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think Ron, as much as I, I respected him at one time, he seems to have lost his marbles. A little bit. And, uh, and, and Rand, well, there's just no... There weren't any marbles there to begin no, there with. There weren't any marbles in the bag to begin with. So we're, oh, we're, it seems like a genuine uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, crazy ideologue. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that, Rand? Rand yeah. Paul or... Yeah, yeah Rand. Rand. No, I... I Ron had some good, you know, Ron Call is, uh, you know, he, I think he's guided by certain principles. I don't agree with all of them, um, but uh, I think his son is pretty much a craven opportunist who, um, you know, is, uh, and, you know, some of his pals uh, uh, are, you know, from the union busting community, and I just, uh, you know, don't have a whole lot of respect for Rand Paul. No, I don't either. And then Leo but he's, but he's just... Yeah, but, uh, his father just endorsed Ted Cruz. Ron Paul just can't make it up. Oh, you got to make it up. Oh, and the article you just read on Jeb Bush. Oh, my God, yeah. Jeb Bush. You mean Hispanic Jeb Bush? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeb Bush claims he's going to be a president like Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson. Can you imagine that? Yeah, you, the only you can't. Thing he has a yeah. Texas, I guess, at one time. It's uh, crazy. It's just crazy. I don't know where these people. Uh, these, yeah. Right, and and then they. Well, and part of it, you know, of course, the media just treats them as if they're, you know, legitimate. And uh, I just, you know, I can't stand that they they validate, uh, you know, their um, their platforms and their programs and their proposals. It's disturbing. He said, uh, former Florida Jeb Bush said he would strive to be like Lyndon Johnson, the Democrat famous for expanding the U.S. welfare state to the great society if he were elected president. That that, that kills him with the, almost every Republican uh, uh, voter. I would think so. You know, don't you think? Uh, um, yes, you would think that. You would think, so, <laughs> you right? would think that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So he wants to start another... A uh, huge war on poverty program like uh, like well like uh, Johnson did. I can't believe mm. that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm having a tough time. Uh, I'm having a tough time buying that one. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I, I my my guess is he probably meant he wanted to be more of the spin master the way Lyndon Johnson was, who was a very crafty, skilled politician. Yeah. And mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. My guess is that's what he's attracted to, more than the programs that Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, I, mean, he, 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 I mean, his character doesn't prove that he could that he could put across a bill like that. No, but, and uh, I I can't imagine that, anybody, that he could achieve any, anybody, Lyndon Johnson's uh, abilities in. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but he's, uh, well, he, Johnson screwed up in a lot of ways, but, yeah. well, but, yeah, but what, I think I think what knocks me out the most was that. Uh, um, I can't. I just can't see. Jeb Bush was a very conservative Republican uh, governor. Plus, he was a crook, you know, uh, in the election yep. fraud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, but who? I mean, can you see the Koch brothers putting money behind this guy? I don't see that. Oh, I can. 
You know, because not if he's going to expand the social. Um, he's not going to do that. I think. But he's not going to. Yeah, it's just a very cynical um, ploy, and you know. And look, the Koch brothers are going to their their money is at play already with you know Scott Walker and other candidates, and uh, you know whoever whoever emerges, whatever radical um, emerges as the um, uh, candidate will be getting ample backing from the Koch brothers. Oh yeah, oh I agree with you a hundred percent, and. Um... I would guess that Jeb Bush didn't express himself very well, and that's probably runs in the family. Neither could the other one. Yeah, but right. that's, that's the winning quality of that of that family. That they can't, they, they can't, they, they don't know how to express themselves exactly. correctly. Oh yeah, I guess right. so. Yeah. And you just hope to have it play out publicly so voters can see uh, what hypocrites and the liars these guys are on, on the right. So well, we'll see. It's got to be. It's got to happen. It's yeah. And one, one last word for Hillary. What 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 we do about Hillary? Huh? Yeah, you know, this is look this is I mean, this is the Democratic Party's problem. It'll become a, you know, uh the, the nation's problem if they can't identify um, viable people. I I am at least heartened by the fact that when you look at, you know, at least on, you know, uh, I talk to friends and you look at Facebook and um you know, there's not going to be a um, uh, just sort of a, a, a bland acceptance uh, that she's the only candidate. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to go to Warren. You know, maybe Martin O'Malley, the ex-governor of Maryland, emerges. But I, I think there's going to be a debate because, uh, you know, the the insider stuff and, you know, Wall Street. Um, she came out and said she was the judge. She was uh, kind of arm twisted. And she came out and said she wouldn't be running for president. Mm. Um, yeah, and and you know this like I, I feel like Wall Street's going to win either way. I mean, I'm getting worried about you know about that. It's going to be Wall Street over Main Street. But again, you know, hopefully um, she's forced to. If she ends up being a candidate, she'll be forced to actually um, reach out to to the middle uh, to middle class voters and explain why. You know, she's not going to be a, a tool of the, the business community, and um, that'll be healthy for the process. Here's something even better. Uh, Ted Cruz's wife, all right, she is the uh, managing director for their for Goldman Sachs in, in Texas. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. That's the, but, you know, and that's the thing, that as crazy as these guys all sound, it's really scary because they're – their backing comes from, you know, wealthy America, from corporate America. They, they really are, you know, there's there's a lot of people um, behind uh, these candidates who, who want to see these uh, uh, radical, uh, destructive views prevail. But this crazy-ass platform, this D-Bagger platform, is to, is to uh, get rid of the bank, you know, and, and give them banks to the, the, uh, diminish the, the uh, power of the, of the banking industry. Uh, you know, and uh, and yet here's his wife, uh, the director of the Texas uh, Goldman Sachs offices. Just uh, disclosure. Uh, what do, what do you know about Martin O'Malley, the uh, governor of I don't know, the present governor, former governor of Maryland? Yeah. Uh, well, he's certainly well regarded in Maryland. He had a solid record of good labor relations in that state. Um, he. Uh, you know, for minimum wage increases, 
you know, he seems like a good man and, you know, he wants to be part of the debate. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I just think I, I welcome anyone at this point who's just going to, who's a legitimate candidate who can mobilize, um, voters, uh, and union members and, uh, union families. And, uh, I just think that that would be, uh, I think it's welcome and it's needed, uh, how about do you think Jim Webb uh, has a has a chance at all? From Virginia? Who? Yeah. Jim Webb. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, I you know unfortunately I I I'm not a <laughs> not an expert on him. I I, I respected him when he was uh, you know senator. I I don't know that he's um, you know it doesn't sound like he's got much of a record to run at this point. I know not not much of a record, but. You know, neither did Obama really. So, but he did have he did have a full term in the Senate uh, for mm-hmm. right. And, no, he's, I just don't think he's got like the national poll, you know. No. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. He couldn't seem to get much momentum going. I don't, I don't know why. I right. No, it never. Kind of like uh, you know, the way Wes Clark came out, and that never yeah, happened. Yeah. You know. Speaking of that, so. yeah. We'll see. Hey, I got to run, guys. All right. But thanks very much for being with us tonight, Thank you. Thanks for your patience in having me. And uh, I think we'll have uh, uh, equally interesting stuff to talk about next month. (laughs) I think so, too. Well, have a good one. All right. You, You too. Good to hear from you. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Good night. Take care. Public Affairs Coordinator for AFSCME Council 4 out of New Britain, Connecticut talking to us about the state of Connecticut and some possible people who might run as Democrats uh, for president. They're kind of out there, but, you know, no one has really said too much on the Democratic side yet. Some of the Republicans have said a lot more. Yes, they have. And they've gotten a lot more press anyway. But, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of frightening concepts there that, that we have to play with. But oh. the... But the The one thing that that I wanted to repeat that I brought up right away is that um, the Council for Retiree chapter is seeking new members, and I think that's really important. So um, any former union member... How do they get into that? Well, uh, you can uh, go to um, uh, askmechapter4.org. And go right to the AFSCME website, and you can find it there, and uh, you can become a member. Because there's a lot you can do. Just because you're retired doesn't mean doesn't mean you should lose interest. You need to be active. Plus, it's a way to keep your pensions and uh, you know safe. It's in your own it's in your own interest actually to be involved. And I know when I retire, I'm going to be part of that. I think it's an important thing. So, anything more on candidates there, Leo? I noticed that you were looking. No, uh, pretty much got most of it out. Uh, they did say here, though, that it's interesting, oddly enough, they're saying that Lyndon Johnson was a racist. Civil rights hero, but also a racist. Well, he was brought up at a time when that. And this is from MSNBC. Well, he, you, have to, you have to remember that that's what his upbringing was, but he recognized that the time was right, and he was the one that um, passed the Civil Rights Act. He was the one that that made that happen. 
and you know he probably was a racist because he was brought up at that time when that's that's what the culture was. He probably wasn't any different than most Southerners. Yeah, he was. Um, in Senate colloquies and staff meetings, Johnson was practically a connoisseur of the word, according to well, Johnson's he was known biography. To be very crude. Johnson would calibrate his pronunciation by region, using "negra" in in some uh, Southern legislatures and "negra" in others, and uh, by region uh, and discussing civil rights uh, legislation with men like Mississippi Democrat James Eastland who committed most of his life to defending white supremacy, he'd simply call it the nigger bill. And in, uh, then in 1957, Johnson would help get the bill, the end bill. Uh, yeah, passed known to most as the Civil Rights Act of 1957. It wouldn't have happened without him. He was very powerful. the 1954 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act, the segregationists would go to their graves knowing that the cause that they'd given their lives to had been betrayed. And Frank Underwood styled by a man they believed to be one of their own. When Carroll asked segregationist Georgia Democrat Herman Talmadge how he felt when Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act said, We shall overcome, Talmadge said, Sick. And the Civil Rights Act made it possible for Johnson to smash Jim Crow. The Voting Rights Act made the U.S. government accountable to its black citizens and a true democracy. I, you know, I gotta say, you know, the, he was a very practical man. But he saw yeah. that it was the time. He was, but, but it he turns out he did more for 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 the for the advancement of colored people than uh, any other president, but but Lincoln. Mhm. Yeah. So kind of interesting, though. Yeah. Anyway, he was else? a very practical man, Leo. No, he was. He, he was. I don't know how much you'd like him if you knew him. He, well, was, he was probably him. wasn't very nice and could be very crude. True. But, you know, at the same time, what are you going to do? What can you do, right? <laughs> um, let's see. Can we get The scandal that would blow up Rand Paul's machine. A criminal poll involving his father's 2012 campaign is inching dangerously close to Paul's inner circle. On December 26, 2011, a week before Iowa's first in the state First nation, in the nation. The presidential caucus, influential Republican state senator named Ken Sorensen and his wife, Shauna. Shawnee. You want to read this? Well, you didn't pronounce her. Arrived at a steakhouse in, a, in Altoona, a suburb of Des Moines. A goateed Mr. Clean lookalike, Sorensen was a hot commodity. His deep ties to the state's evangelical leaders and homeschooling activists made his endorsement highly sought after by GOP presidential hopefuls, particularly the second-tier contenders who had staked their campaigns in a strong Iowa showing. Sorensen had picked his horse early, signing on as Michelle Bachman's Iowa chairman in June 2011, a coup for the Minnesota Congressman's upstart campaign. Joining the Sorensons was a bicycle politician operative named Dimitri Kisari, the deputy campaign manager representative of Ron Paul's 2012 presidential bid. 
His caucus day neared, Ron Paul's campaign was surging in the polls but needed a late boost if he wanted to meet his goal of finishing in the top three. That's where Sorensen came in. When the state senator left to use the restroom, Kasari produced a $25,000 check drawn from the account of designer Goldsmith, a jewelry store run by his wife, and gave it to Shawnee Sorensen. Two days later, Kent Sorensen, Kent Sorensen left a Bachman campaign event, drove straight to a Ron Paul rally, and declared that he had defected. As it turned out, Paul's inner circle had been secretly negotiating for months to lure Sorensen away from the Bachman campaign. In an October memo to Paul, campaign manager John Tate, a Sorensen ally, outlined the state senator's demands, which included an $8,000 a month payment for nearly a year, another $5,000 a month check for a colleague of Sorensen's, and a $100,000 donation to Sorensen's political action committee. The memo explained that these payments would not only secure Sorensen's support in the near term, but also help to build a major state-based movement that will involve far more people into a future Rand Paul presidential, uh, I lost my right. question. His honest $25,000 check, in other words, amounted to more than a down payment on an endorsement for Ron Paul. It was an investment in Rand Paul's 2016. The uh, Kentucky senator officially declared his candidacy on Tuesday with the 2016 Iowa caucuses nine months away. This scheme could become a liability for the latest Paul presidential enterprise. The Sorensen deal exploded into public view in 2013 thanks to a pair of whistleblowers from the Ron Paul in boxing campaigns, and the episode now hangs over Rand Paul and is in the circle like a dark cloud. Okay. And the Sorensen scandal has sparked state and federal. Well, they have a lot of investigators. But, um, so it's going to be. It sounds like a mess to me. Yeah, it's going to be huge. It's going to be a big mess. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a long article. Yeah. So, folks, if you really if, if you want to get to it, where do they have to go? Uh, let's see. They have to go to. Uh, it's question. Where is it? Uh, Mother Jones. Mother Jones. Thank you. They do a lot of long articles. Yeah. Mother Jones. And the name of the article is The Scandal That Could Blow Up Rand Paul's Machine. Yes. Um, so we're right to the well, end of our show, yep, and we, we want to thank you for end. being with us. And are you going to be on tomorrow night, Leo? Yes, I will. I so you can uh, listen to Leo really tomorrow night, really and I'll talk to you next week. Good night, folks. All right, everybody. Have a good night.